2: That's the second time it has gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those guys. Those,
3: those and I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't
4: you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team.
0: Second captain, first captain, whatever. The test series Hasn't even started yet In Australia But no doubt Who the star of the show Has been up to now As much a part of Lion's folklore As Ian McGeegan Willie John McBride And pompous Sky Sports ads It's the fluffy little Lion mascot Murph They take it very seriously They do take it seriously This Lion has been Consistent in its performances Yet again on this tour though He leaves You always know What's going to happen He leaves the dressing room In the arms of the captain Gets discarded almost As soon as he arrives On the pitch But resurfaces At a later break in play As the subject of A lingering intimate yeah. TV close-up.
5: Well, I would, I would actually love to see Brian Driscoll just drop-kick it about 40 yards onto the pitch as he's running, because that's the amount of respect this cuddly toy should be getting instead of it being revered as kind of a lost biblical relic. And what I should say, the one on Saturday was an, the most cross-eyed uh, mascot that I've ever seen. The eyeballs that were like, going with. Very, yeah, very few. people have ever seen the toy teddy
4: bear
0: in Breaking Bad, they might have an idea of what the lion was looking like. Floating in the swimming pool. That's the one. Gerald Davies was the Lions tour manager in 2009. I watched the documentary on the Lions that year last week. And uh, in one of their first meetings where they have all the players together and are just trying to get them attuned to what the Lions is all about, he, he literally picked up the fluffy lion, said to a bunch of professional athletes, this is what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> fluffy
4: toy. Uh, the fluffy toys aren't usually um, that inspirational, in a in, you know in a high level sporting context. It
5: doesn't work for every professional athlete.
4: Well, there was Stu Pearce. who's the only other person I can remember who evolved one in his uh, in his work as a coach. He was when he, when he was the coach of Manchester City. If you remember, he he had this toy. I think it was a donkey. I'm not sh- I can't remember the exact nature of the of the teddy, but he would bring it out and place it kind of by the pitch or by the dugout as what he explained as a good look charm. And people said, "Really, Stuart?" And he said, "Look, my my young daughter's actually given it to me. What am I supposed to do?" But of course, the toy quickly became a sort of lightning lightning rod for all the doubts that people had about Stuart Pierce. I mean, the fact that he was unable to say to his daughter, No." I'm not bringing, <laughs> I'm not, daddy has to go to work now. We'll play later with the teddy. <laughs> the fact that he couldn't, wasn't capable of saying that to his young daughter, maybe, um, you know, represented his weakness in the eyes of, in the eyes of his players.
0: We're going to be talking to US Murphy a little bit later on uh, about Phil Mickelson and a little more besides the Confederations Cup has arrived in Brazil at a bad time, it looks like. Eh?
4: It's absolutely incredible what's happening in Brazil. And I've just been watching so much footage of it. Uh, these, simultaneous protests all over the country and time to coincide with the Confederations Cup. Now, in fact, uh, starting off on Thursday, just a couple of days before the Confederations Cup actually kicked off, but just as the world's media, or at least uh, a hand-picked sort of elite group of the world's media arrives, because not everybody gets to go to the Confederations Cup that will be at the World Cup, but certainly a lot of attention internationally on Brazil at the moment for the football and everybody is now just transfixed by these images of protests, which are really, really huge. And I suggest that everybody goes and checks them out because this is as big, looking at the what was happening last night in Rio de Janeiro, as big in terms of numbers anyway as anything that we've seen in Turkey in, in recent weeks.
0: Tim Vickery is over there witnessing all this, so he'll explain exactly what's going on a bit later on. Joe Kinnear has re-emerged, has just... Blown back onto the English football scene over the last day or so again.
4: <laughs> Joking here. Uh, I mean, okay, we we do have a couple of clips of his interview. Uh, this is him talking uh, on the Andy scene and Jason Cundy show. I think Jason Cundy had the night off last night in Talksport, but a big night for the show. Uh, they got Joking here. And uh, I mean, who could have, who really could have predicted? It? I mean, it's, is, is it a little bit mean, Owen, when the whole world gangs up on a man simply because he, opens his mouth a few times, and every single time he opens his mouth, a mistake tumbles out. The background being that he claims
0: that he's been appointed as director of football at Newcastle, a club he previously managed
4: without a huge amount of success. And I think quite a lot of the uh, media up there are a little bit annoyed, and the fans indeed as well, at the suggestion that they're all racists who hate anyone who isn't Geordie. They're incapable of accepting anyone who isn't Geordie. That's a point that Joe Kinnear made. In his interview, but the main thing about the interview is that here's a guy who's coming in as director of football, which is a big job. I mean, it's, it's a big strategic role. You know, you, you're, you're planning the long-term structure of the club, etc., etc., and he doesn't even know what the players are called. So here he is talking to Andy Gossett, who has asked, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of uh, seeing just how closely Joe Kinnear has been keeping in touch with Newcastle over the past, in recent times.
6: Joe, have you seen much of Newcastle over the last season? Yes, sure. And uh, you mentioned you think they need to strengthen up front. Is that the only area? Sorry? Is that the only area up front, um, having seen them well, over the last season, you think they, they need some to strengthen? Well, I've magnificent midfield players: Tayote, Ben, Affer, ben Affer. Yohan Kebab, Sissoko, they're very solid in that game. Up front, I think we need a prolific goal scorer, but there's a lot of players still there that were there when I was there. I mean, Krul, I brought Krul there.
4: Didn't bring in Krul.
6: The goalkeeper, and I think he's a terrific goalkeeper. You know, Schole and Mimoby are still there. Sammy is is getting
4: better and better with his young kid. Gutierrez is still there. Gutierrez. Uh, Perch is still there, I think he said as well. He didn't bring in Tim Krill? No. Tim Krill was there for two years by the time Joe Kinnear arrived. (laughs) But he was there. He was signed while Graham Sooness was the manager. The interview is incredible. Uh, You know... It's hard to know where to even begin with it. we I, play a little bit
0: more of it later on? We'll
4: definitely get back to no. it. It's uh, uh, The reaction, I've never seen an appointment like this. I've never seen such universal ridicule. And the, you know, I feel a bit sorry for Joe here. It's never easy to be in the position he's put himself in, but he's given us no choice but to laugh at him.
0: Pat Spillane had a damning assessment of modern Gaelic football at half-time the Cavan for Manor match on Sunday. Now, it'll be... Too annoying, I think, to play in full. But if you didn't hear it, this collection of words sums it up pretty well as we play Pat in 15 seconds flat.
1: Modern day coaching.
0: What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated
1: by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ear. Psychologists. tie Woodruff, aestheticians, Dietitians. And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us.
0: Mick O'Connell gets his mention. Sorry. What?
5: <laughs> but if you're listening to that and thinking, oh, well, that's all very cleverly edited. That's. Pretty much exactly what it was. I mean, if the halftime had gone yeah, on... A few superfluous nouns taken out, that's about yeah, it. Yeah, but it was just basically things that annoy me about Gaelic football <laughs> today by pat Ballad. Just rambled them all out. I mean, if, if halftime had gone on for any longer, he'd have started giving out about lads wearing football boots and jerseys. Every one of them out there wearing a jersey. They didn't even pay for it, no doubt. County boards giving them <laughs> yeah. jerseys. They should be out there nude. Every one of them. I mean, it's really, it's ridiculous. It's utterly, utterly ridiculous. We're going to be talking. But that's Pat Spallad. I mean, you know, the man's, it's about entertainment. As he told the Irish Times uh, before the championship started, no one really wants to hear any analysis. You know, no one wants analysis. They just want entertainment. We're going to be talking to Doshi and Anthony Moyles a little bit later on. Um, yeah, and uh, Moyles, obviously was uh, down in Me- down in Ockham for Meath and Wicklow. And we saw the debut of the fastest man in Gaelic football, uh, Eamon Wallace. Fortress Ockham, we should be. Yet again, Wicklow lose at Fortress yep. Ockham. Fortress o- I mean, it's it's hard to go into a fortress. You know, you storm the fortress and obviously you get the fortress. But... It's never easy. No. So in that respect, you know, I, I can see why they, they would make call it extremely
0: that. difficult to storm their fortress, mm. which is usually done successfully. Yeah. They,
5: they do eventually give you the fortress, though.
0: All right, let's get straight into the Lions now because they have been beaten for the first time on the tour. We're going to be crossing over to Canberra. Alan Quinnon is at the stadium there. Shane Horgan's going to chat to us too. But in studio is Trevor Hogan, who's been watching this one in the Irish Times here. Trevor, a bit of a blow for the Lions squad today?
7: Yeah, I suppose, it, bearing in mind how well it's been going, maybe he could have envisaged a potential slip-up at some stage. like Things were going that well. But uh, when you saw the injuries to the back line and you saw having to put in the likes of Christian Wade, Shane Williams, uh, Billy 12 and and Barrett there, it it was possibly always going to be a really tough ask. And you could see from the outset that Brumbies were really up for it. Um, They were really hungry. Their captain, captain, uh, he was really gunning for a place himself this weekend, possibly. So... You know, they really dominated the breakdown and the there's, there's, it's, it's, it's questions have been asked now, like uh, what, had Gatlin prepared the team well enough to to deal with this scenario of injuries and uh, the confidence could be taking a bit of a hit now going into the weekend. Alan Quinn, are those questions going to
0: intensify now that they actually have lost again?
2: Well, it puts a bit of pressure on them. Obviously, it's, it's, um, it stops their 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 goal for an unbeaten tour. Um, it just had a feel about it, the whole match tonight when we arrived Stadium here. Um, speaking to, I had a good chat with Laurie Fisher last night, the former Munster forwards coach, and he's back, working with the Bombers for the last two seasons. And uh, I was taken aback a little bit by his confidence. Um, you know the way, the way they were going to approach the game, the way they were going to play a good kicking game, put a lot of pressure. Trevor mentioned the breakdown there. He was sp- speaking about that last night to me. And they executed really well, you know, the lads will tell you as well, you know, you can have all these game plans. Sometimes they don't come to fruition, but they executed a very good game plan tonight. And they had a real desire and passion, the Brumbies. For sure, the Brumb, uh, the Lions were disrupted with the, the couple of new, good few of the new guys coming in. Um, there was a good atmosphere here. There was a real excitement about the Lions being here in Canberra. And, uh, it just went right for the Brumbies tonight, but they showed real passion, real work rate. And, uh, you know, the Lions looked, looked a bit lost at times. They never had, they had very few line breaks, one or two towards the end of the game. But they just couldn't break down that Bumbies defence. And uh, it was a real workman-like, huge uh, work rate from, from the Bumbies that got them over the line in the end.
0: Shane, does this make any difference to the test series and the first test specifically? Is that just one of those myths that builds up around the Lions that you, it's all about how the midweek team goes, that feeds into how the first team is going to go?
1: Well, it keep the camp happier, but it's not essential for uh, to win every game up to the first test to necessarily win the first test um, I do think it, it does uh, help it, it also helps to um, create a, a secondary level of players that are ready to perform at a high level and capable of performing at a high level uh, below your uh, starting fifteen and uh, you know so some of the competa- competition for places will have been affected and, and What's difficult for some of the players who will have been involved in that game with a severely weakened team, and I'm thinking that guys like um, Sean O'Brien and Tip Rick, uh, for example, two guys who I think have played v- exceptionally well on tour so far, it just goes to show that if you're not involved in the right team, against the right team, when you're playing the Lions tour, it can have se- serious um, repercussions for your chances of being selected for the first test.
0: Do you think that there was a mishandling of the situation by Warren Gatland? To end up with a team like this, albeit you can't, I suppose you probably yeah. can legislate for injuries because you know you're going to have a load of injuries as a Lions
7: coach. True, but even after the game, he was kind of saying that it's very hard to have predicted the the nature of the injuries to the backline, especially they would've, probably would have been preparing for injuries in the in the pack and the nutritional nature of it. And as it stands, they've got no injuries in the back row, which is a huge area of competition, and they've all come in, in the backline. Um, so you, you can feel for them in that way, and and what what they would have, how they would have planned for. That that would have been very hard. Um, the half situation seems to be okay, which was the one where they were probably maybe looking a bit light. So they've handled that well, but it's just outside that has created the problems. But as as Shane is saying there, the one thing from tonight now is it's crystallised, possibly a selection and those areas that were going to be uh, contentious for the weekend. So... You know, they just have to try and take some sort of weight. Like, you know, you can use a defeat to kind of really uh, refocus. And they'll they learn now how, how they weren't, they were so flat in the first 20. And that's what happened in South Africa in the first test. You're chasing the game after that. It's going to be very hard. So you can be guaranteed come Saturday, Paul O'Connell and win Jones. These lads will bring that hunger from the outset or else it's going, to be, it's going to be very much impossible to come back.
0: Alan, is there still a case of picking on reputation when it comes to Warburton starting this game on Saturday?
7: Yeah, I think because he's made capt- captain of the tour
2: at the start, I think he's, um, you know, he's, he's going to start and, uh, but I think, um, Tupurik has been, uh, fantastic for me. He's, he's a great player. Uh, Warburton looked a little bit, uh, lacking a bit of match fitness or general fitness, um, against C- Queensland there last week and he struggled a little bit to make a, um, a real impact in the game. But, uh, I think Tupurik is, is, you know, he's just so lively in his feet, but, you know, it's done and dusted now. Warburton's going to start. Um, he is a big game player. Uh, he is capable of stepping up in the tests. It looks like Croft and Heathslip will be his partners in the back row, and that's a powerful, strong back row. Sean O'Brien is certainly unlucky. Um, it was tough for him tonight. You know, they were they were under a lot of pressure all night. They didn't get good quality ball, but um, I'm sure by taking Sean O'Brien off, um, that's an indication that he's going to be involved at the weekend. Was, uh, the back row and the breakdown in general come Saturday in the first test is going to be a real contest, and that's probably one that um, you know the, the, the Australians feel they can they can slow that momentum, that flow, that uh, that quality of possession, that pace that the, the lines want to play the game as, slow it down and, and um, you know upset the lines, and they'll take hope from tonight. They'll take uh, a bit of confidence out of that, what happened here. And that's what the Bumbies did all night. They just slowed down. They competed at the, at the breakdown. They counter-rugged. They got back on their feet and they just kept making those tackles over and over again. And, and the lines looked a bit lost in their defense. You know, they were disrupted with all the changes and stuff. It'll be a different scenario on Saturday. Who knows what's going to happen? It's intriguing with the Wallabies. They've, they've kind of kept under the radar a little bit. Um, there's not a lot on the papers. There's all their sessions are behind closed doors. Um, so it's it's going to make an intriguing first test match on Yeah, Saturday.
0: it's interesting that Alan brings up the build-up Shane, I have been struck by that there were the allegations of spying doors Bob Dwyer uh, you know calling Lions cheats essentially for doing what almost every rugby team in the world tries to do it all seems a bit tame maybe compared to previous Lions particularly the one you were on in 2005 where there seemed genuine antipathy from the local media there
1: yeah, there really were the the media in New Zealand were were sort of like a, a fifth column of, of the All Blacks. They really went to undermine uh, the Lions. I think, um, I think there were there was some fear there. England having made up a lot of that team, um, a team that had won the 2003 World Cup, and there maybe a, a, a fear that that they could have actually turned over um, the All Blacks. As it worked out, it was just that team was on the way down, and as a result, it was probably an issue that maybe. Uh, affect this tour, um, as Alan alluded to in Warburg, where you've got a player that is 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 somewhat being picked on reputation, and he hasn't had a great year, and I don't think he's had a great tour so far. Now, you know, a lot of you know there was there was a lot um, put in his performance at the weekend. I thought he was average the weekend. I thought he was okay in, in a good pack, and I, I certainly would like to have seen you know, Kiprek maybe start in that position or even I'd like to see Sean O'Brien at some stage play with a seven as well um, but there's certainly there's certainly the build up is starting to come and you know uh, that's not unexpected by Bob Dwyer you know that's the kind of thing that he, he always comes out with but I don't think there's the, the same um, I suppose uh, um, vindictiveness that there was in the 2005 Lions
0: The Warburton element is quite interesting not only that he's playing but also he is the captain in the tour but and so far there's been a positive spin put on the fact that he's a young captain and he's got O'Driscoll and O'Connell in the dressing room but could there be blurred lines there is there a danger that other players Trevor in that dressing room might be thinking you know Sam you're not actually playing particularly well and we've got these two other guys who we can lean on we don't
7: actually need you in yeah. The first yeah it's a fair point what Shane says about possibly looking at Shawnee there at seven but it seems to be like Sean's been looking at at six purely for this this tour now Tonight's affected that as well. I think, Shawnee no, uh, and Tipperick didn't really stand out, you know. And the same with Falato, who might have been trying to push slip So difficult situation, as Shane says, for them, given that they weren't in a team that was going to allow them to exactly. do too much damage. Exactly. But when the coaches sit down, uh, how much are they going to? They're going to just have to take what they see. And, and I suppose the opposition will bear, bear a, a factor and the team that they were playing playing in. But. Yeah, there is an element of Warburton and he's he was average enough against the Waratahs, but he's still he's still um in that balance that the back row that they have. He will be you know, I think he'll still be an important player there and I think he can produce it on the day. Listen, if he doesn't, I don't think Gatland is the type of lad that will, will, will go for him again the second test because he he'd be more ruthless than we say in, in Shane's time with Woodward. There's there's gonna be if they lose if they lose and Warren's not up to it, I, I I'd say they'll, they'll go with Tipperary or Shawnee the following week.
0: Shane, what does Gatland bring to the table? I saw Lawrence Delalio on the Sunday Times describe the performance on Saturday against the Waratahs as Warren Gatland rugby at its very best. What is Warren Gatland rugby in your opinion?
1: I'm trying to figure that out um, I think he, he, with the Lions team it's quite different he's been, I think he's been lucky in some degree with the teams that he's had um, he's had very uh, successful teams that have a very strong cores very strong leaders like so, if you look at the teams that he's, he's inherited right away his, through his career um, he's inherited very good players and good leaders in key positions but I think when he was with Ireland and he certainly evolved as a coach there's no doubt about, uh, doubt about that but um, when he was with Ireland, he wasn't technically a brilliant coach. He was very much, uh, I suppose, an old-school New Zealand coach in that a lot of the game was about a very uh, strong rocking game, a very physical rucking game, and clearing the ball quickly and allowing it to get to the back. But it wasn't technically nuanced. Um, but I think what he does create and what he will be and is a good uh, call for the, the Lions, he seems to be able to create a very good environment for players to produce their best rugby. And you see the group of players that have performed for him uh, with Wales have... Have previously underperformed really, and he's made a very uncomfortable environment for them to play with a huge confidence that was often, very often, lacking in the Welsh game. The players seemed a lot more capable and confident under him, and willing to uh, to, uh, produce the goods. And you know, you can instill that same sort of mentality into you know the Lions players, then you've got a real chance. But I think they're still finding their way a bit. I think they're finding their way into the defensive system that isn't right. Um, I don't think the wing, Wings are implementing it, in, in especially Cuthbert isn't in, implementing it, uh, his, the defensive system, pretty, w- very well. He's not, um, he's, he's, he's calling the blitz too early, and he's not recognising and making the right calls. That's why I think Tommy is a huge loss. I think what we saw today as well, they haven't got to go with the red and numbers that they have to put in rooks. I thought early on in the tour, they were putting too many numbers in rooks, and today they weren't putting enough because the, um, the, the, um, um, Brumbies were really really competitive on the ground they only put small numbers in but they were really really competitive and aggressive the two guys that they sent in or the one guy they sent in and the Lions didn't deal with it very well.
0: Sounds like there are a lot of issues still there then I mean, we knew this was going to be a short lead into the test series but even allowing for that the Lions have been placed as favourites by just about everybody going in is there a sense of nervousness amongst Lions supporters and the media from this part of the world over there at the moment, if, uh, a couple of days away from the first test.
2: No, oh, there was a sense of real confidence in in the last couple of days. I think that might change a little bit now tomorrow. Um, but certainly, the feeling from from any lines people or ex ex lines players, media guys that I've met, is that you know the lines will be just too powerful for for Australia. The Australians will be undercooked. Uh, the lines will have lots of, lots of games played. Albeit, probably not the starting team playing I suppose the, the game against the Waratahs the weekend was probably the closest you'll get to, to a starting team but um, certainly there was a feeling of Lions dominance in, in the Test Series and, and talk of going unbeaten throughout the Tour I'm sure that'll change tomorrow it'll give the Australians certainly confidence that you know if they are competitive if they have a good set piece scrum and line out um, slow down that flow and, and really compete at the breakdown I think the Australians will try and frustrate. That'll be their, their tactic is to frustrate the line, stop their flow momentum. their big ball carriers and match them physically. That's the question mark about Australian teams and occasions over the years. Um, they're not as physical as New Zealanders or South Africans and, and, um, you know, teams have taken advantage of that. Um, but certainly all that stuff will, will be mentioned and spoke about. The next job is, is implementing that plan. Um, so look, I say, as the lad said, um, it's not a it, it is a blow, but not a huge blow because uh, it's a completely different team they will go to the Test game on Saturday. It's uh, it's the first Test game. There's going to be huge excitement about it, a huge determination, and maybe this is a bit of a shock and a bit of a fright that the Lions need that they don't get too far ahead of themselves. That they can be vulnerable if they if they if they don't execute properly, and uh, it might be a little wake up call that they need.
7: One, one thing that's, yeah, I mean, will be worrying though, I suppose it is harsh to judge it on tonight with the with the new guys coming in, but it there was very little shape there and that's one, something that we can identify from Gatlin and what his type of team has. They have a very identifiable shape and patterns of play. I mean, if you look at Wales and the way they've played over the last few years, they seem to be able to threaten from all all sorts of positions. They Phillips really controls it. You don't know if they're going to keep going the same way or come back short. Uh, he'll really you really pre- um, threaten down the short side as well I could see the Lions initially starting to play a little bit like that but then they changed a little bit again to tr- start more of a, a kind of a Leinster way where they started using Johnny Sexton down the blind on the, on a few wraparounds so Gatlin is, is definitely he's innovative and I'd say he's trying to keep the Australians guessing a little bit what type of game they're going to play but Tonight, that kind of all went out the window. There was very little shape there. Um, obviously, it's got to do with maybe the new guys coming in. But I think Gatlin will have to try and regroup them now this week. And he will have to try and get them playing that that kind of Wales style with a little bit of the Leinster kind of threatening back down the short side on, with Johnny Sexton controlling it. So that's going to be the challenge now for Gatlin to enforce that with Howley for the weekend.
0: Alan, are there any selection calls still to be made at this stage, do you think? Are we unless, is, unless it's a miraculous recovery from... Tommy Bow or George North or somebody like that. Are we pretty sure what the fifteen is?
2: Yeah, I think everyone is fairly fairly sure at this stage. Um the talk is George North is gonna be okay, which is a huge boost for, for, for the Lions. Um, he's been fantastic in the games he's played. Uh Tommy Bow's parents I was chatting to him today, I uh, wasn't chatting to Tommy directly, but his parents are I met them and uh he was trying to push himself forward for this week. He's been back doing some training, so I think he's he's gonna be available for the second test, which is uh it's great for him personally and it's a good boost for the line. So but I think, you know, it's any of the guys who played on Saturday and have, are, were not involved tonight. Some of the bench will be involved. Um maybe Sean O'Brien as I said, I think he should be involved and in if he's not gonna start. But uh, I think it's uh it's it's a fairly predictable team. You could name off the team but uh um not too many I suppose uh, from from the starting team tonight
0: yeah Shane the build up now for these players over the next few days to a first line test a lot of them have played in the tours before, but some of them haven't. Is it very different to a big match with your country?
1: No, it's not really actually it's not not that different at all. I'd say the structure of the week would be very similar and um, you know certainly for the Welsh guys with the Gatland influence and maybe the English guys with Farrell, um, I'd say, you know, it's pretty standard. There's, teams don't do drastically different things in the build-up. There'll probably be more work, work in the video room. There might be a bit more technical work. Um, they'll be very close to knowing what um, the combination is already for the f- first test, if not the bench. Um, there are only a couple of um, minor calls, really. And the rest are pretty solid and they would be known. So they'll be working together already, um, but they're really going to, have to draw overdrive now because I'm sure that the players will be informed as soon as possible uh, um, about uh, what the starting line is going to be. I think there's going to be a real concentration and I think there needs to be a real concentration on set piece. I think that's something that the Lions can really have a huge influence on the game. Um, and I think they were undersold it today and I think the front five were poor today. Uh, for the Lions whereas I thought they were really good uh, last weekend or the weekend against the Waratahs Uh, the line out was a big trouble again today an unfortunate day for uh, Rory Best uh, but there seems to be more fundamental um, problems there with that line-out um uh, crew, and that seemed to be solved on Saturday, and, and that's why I thought Tom Young, there may be a question there between Hibbert and Tom Young, so I thought Tom Young went very well. The line-out, yeah, it didn't go to the back, but it was a really smart move by, you know, probably being called by um, Paulie and um, Alan Wynne-Jones, one of the two guys. Um, in conjunction with Tom Youngs, I thought was very, very solid at what the Lions needed. That line is, if it performs the way it did on Saturday, the Lions have every chance of uh, succeeding. But if it performs the way it has done in really any other game on this tour, it'd be very, very difficult for them to, to win it. The other thing that I think that came out of this game was... And we've we seen it right the way through this tour. The Australian teams don't handle the rolling ball well, and the Lions do it well. So I think there is something that there's a couple of elements to this team that aren't particularly glamorous, but the Lions can really exploit weaknesses in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Wallabies team by going after the scrum, going after the line and the rolling ball and also the pick-and-goes around the edges because they do tend to to, to fan out in defence and make it difficult for teams to get around them. Now, if you actually drag in numbers and hit those uh, pillars of the first defenders around the rook or, or one further out as, as the Lions have been doing successfully and we saw... Paul O'Connell has been very good at that. He's been first receiver, looks at like if he's going to carry, then shifts one out and really breaks up the defensive system and allows for more space. So these things aren't particularly, particularly glamorous, but it's not about looking glamorous for you know, uh, the Wallabies. It's actually about doing what's effective. And, and if they do the effective stuff, they've got every chance of beating them.
4: Every
0: chance of beating them. Will they beat them? Predictions, Trevor?
7: Yeah, I think they will, and if they if they address what Shane's talking about the set piece there, I think the lineup will be grand. Probably Hibbert or Youngs will come in, and Paul and wynne Jones and, and Croft as well. they will be grand there. I wouldn't be panicking there. What I would be really worried about though is the scrum. Why they're not dominating there, and why did it bring out Sheridan? I've kind of spoken about this before. I don't know. I can't get my head around Grant and Corbis Aero were playing today. They never really got on top of a kind of, you know, an average enough uh, Brumbury's front row. So that's the that's where it's going to be won and lost in the first ten fifteen, and the other area then. If they you get the mindset right, um, like Shane is saying. It's, it's 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 still it's not that different from an um, an international game with your country. But interesting insight from Paul O'Connell saying this time around there's not as many lads shouting and roaring in the in the change room. Everyone's individually focused. But if you if you saw the contrast today, we get we have the, the Sky Sports cameras are in the change rooms. You saw Kimlin, the, the Brumbies guy, absolutely going ballistic before the match. Lions lads were all very quiet, which is grand as long as they come out in the first ten and and get rattled into them, which the Brumbies actually did today, and the lines were so flat. So they'll have to get that mindset right for for the weekend. I've no doubt they will, and they get that set piece right, and then the last area is going to be the breakdown, which is which follows on from the mindset. You
0: know. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. What do you think? Is he going to win it?
7: Yeah, I
2: think um, I'd, I'd fancy the the lines to, to win the game on Saturday. I think they'll come out and uh, they'll come out of the blocks, especially what's happened tonight. Um, and physicality will be the key, and I think that's where. The Lions will have the edge. Um, I'm sure the, the Wallabies, as I said, will have their homework done and, and they'll be pretty determined to, to get off to a good start as well. But I'd fancy the Lions to make a, you know, to make a good start. Um, they certainly will have to be a bit more inventive. Shane spoke about it there. Uh, and come up with some good ploys and. Not predictable plays that that to break down the Wallabies, but I think physicality will be the key, and I think they'll win it.
0: And just on a point that Trevor raised there about maybe a slightly different approach in the dressing room. What about outside the dressing room? Do you get the sense that the players are enjoying this experience so far?
2: Very much so. I, I bumped into a few of them on Sunday uh, in Sydney, and uh, they seem pretty happy. They haven't had too much socialising, which uh, sometimes is, is not a not a good thing. Um, but they seem very happy and enjoying the tour. Um, a couple of them spoke how quick it's going by, and that's always a good sign that uh, you're enjoying it. Um, everyone's getting games, and they seem to be uh, seem to got that balance right, um, and so I think they, they are pretty happy and enjoying the tour.
0: Shane, they'll enjoy it more if they win that first test. Do you think they'll do it by the sounds of it?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure anymore. I'm quite concerned right. about uh, the defensive system. I have to say, I think they're looking a little narrow. Um, I think it's some the the wings are an area that uh, the lions exploit i don 't think Cuthbert is, is very comfortable with their defensive system um, he's he 's getting caught watching the man a bit too much and not and making decision on, on how the ball is being passed and I know that the wallabies they will have analyzed this lion's team to death now. I hope the lions have a few different things up their sleeves as they normally do. They normally hold back and don 't show your full hand until the test. But the defensive system doesn't generally change that much, and um, so that would be a concern for me. If you look at the Waratahs, they went round them quite reasonably easy, or they got space out in those white channels reasonably easy. Now the Wallabies don't play quite like the War uh, like the Waratahs do, but at the same time, uh, or like the Reds did prior to that. But at the same time, there's concerns there, so. I just um, just have a, a few concerns about the Lions getting over the line in this first test. You know, I think that injuries have affected them, and I don't think they look quite as strong as they do when they have a, fir- a full team. Um, so I, I certainly think that um, it might go to the Wallabies
0: the first one. All right, Shane, great stuff. Shane Horgan and Trevor Hogan, thank you for coming in, and to Alan Quinlan over in Canberra. We've had a lot of people in touch with us Murph and deep from the Lions tour. A lot of Irish Lions supporters over there trying to get involved in yeah, well, the most I mean, slot of the week?
5: Yeah, they, they don't really have a complete understanding of what we're trying to do here, Pierce and myself, um, because they're, they're just on holidays. You know, they're not actually emigrants. So this slot is just for people who have been forced, you know, to, to go abroad. But just to be clear, there are rules here. Only emigrants need apply. So let's get started, shall we? That's
8: right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? I got the potatoes yeah. and the putsching. Huh? And the putsching. Oh, yeah, There you are.
6: So,
5: it's been another whirlwind week in the uh, already storied history of the Pierce Brosnan Emigrant Shoutout. Uh, we begin with Laura Muir, who has been in touch on Facebook. Hey guys, my boyfriend's obsessed with you. It was all he could talk about for days when you left that other station. Being Canadian, I had no clue what he was talking about. He's the biggest GF fan and general sports fan around, and has your show streaming very loudly throughout the house. He told me about the shoutouts, and since his birthday is next Wednesday, June nineteenth, I was wondering if you could wish him a happy birthday. Owen Rush is the name. He's been in Toronto for three years now. Thanks a million. It would make his day, Laura. Uh, so Laura told us a few other things as well. And uh, she asked us specifically to tell you that it's no big deal. It happens to every guy from time to time. And it's nothing to be worried about, unless it happens again. But uh, hello to you. Uh, Mert Mirador also used Facebook, the popular social media site, to say, Great to listen to second captains at the end of a long day studying monkeys and collecting their shite. The hurling coverage is one of the highlights of my week here at Iguazu Falls, Argentina. Nice. So, good man, Mert. Perhaps the first Mert ever to grace uh, the Iguazu Falls. Who, who, Who knows? Pat Hayes had an interesting idea. Hi lads, listening to the show in Perth, Australia. It's downloaded every Wednesday morning and keeps me going on the journeys to and from work. Just wondering if you had thought about doing a slot for immigrants, people who have come to Ireland and become enthralled in the, in the sports and use your podcast as an audible bible. Tony Cascarino's immigrant shout-out, T-Sizzle. Uh, I reckon it has potential. Keep up the good work. It's something to, uh, to think about. Uh, I'll tell you one guy who's not getting a mention this week and that's Richard McAllister I don't know where he is or what he's at but there's a serious smell of want off him similar levels of desperation from Niall Brennan in Madrid also Robbie Shortall has uh, got to sharpen up his act then again he doesn't look like the sharpest knife in the drawer so I'm not going to hold that much hope there uh, Joe Mooney just saw his first kangaroo and probably lost his mind with excitement the big <laughs> Uh Tom Burke and Siobhan are in Brisbane Sean is listening in from Brooklyn no not the cultural hub that is one of NYC's five boroughs he explains but the small village of Brooklyn spelt with an I in Canada uh, much better I'm sure uh, Philip Fladigan is in Bratislava Brian Cassidy from Barnage is currently stinkifying the entire Boston city and environs uh, Anthony Doyle says me and the Vancouver GA team are travelling to Seattle this week to take on Fraser Town's best and it does sound very glamorous but I do hear it's very wet up there uh, Brian Wilde is listening to us in Croatia Barry Brosnan's in Sorrento and uh, David Hoey is acting the creep in Stockholm, by the sounds of his email. Uh, Angus Kelly is listening in Kosovo, and uh, <clears throat> I hear it's nice this time of year. Uh, David O'Connell is listening in the Cayman Islands, and is chairman of the local GA club over there. Mm. AJ Carlos was in touch on Facebook, and started his message with, How are you lads, are you up for the banter? Oh, so, al- Always AJ. Yeah, so obviously I have no further information on him, I wasn't going to keep reading after a first line like that. And uh, Johnny Rudge says... That Pierce Brosnan's emigrant shout-outs on second captains is probably my favourite feature on any sports show ever. Well, (laughs) if he was was looking for a mention, or if he's just a really sound judge of good radio, well, I don't know, but hello, Johnny. Uh, Kevin Murphy says he spent the last 18 months in Sierra Leone working for Goal, about to come home after four years in Africa. Last chance to get a hashtag P-Bezzo. So you got it in just under the wire there. Uh, Another email here. Well, lads, Colm Halley here in Nairobi, Kenya. Loving your new show. Please allow me to use your show to pass on my regards to my twin brother in uh, Lima, Peru. Well, Bob, how's tricks? <laughs> Good show, eh? Speak later, call. That's it. Uh, this is fine, I suppose, but you could just email each other and, you know, you'd be cutting out the middleman. But nevertheless, uh, John Byrne is in Canada, keeping the indigenous protein shake industry afloat over there. Uh, Will McGrath in Chicago, freaking people out because he hasn't taken off his cork jersey since he arrived a month ago. Uh, Darren McVeigh, uh, I listen to Second Captains while protesting on the streets of Recife, Brazil, but usually listen while sipping a cool rum filled coconut on the beach and wishing I was as suave as Mr. Brosnan. Uh, Aidan Kern is coming home from Paris uh, just because we've reminded him of the potatoes and puchin that he grew up with. Uh, I knew me and Pierce would get this country out of recession. A lot of
0: people coming home, Murph, it sounds like. This is a poignant slot, heading in its own way. Well, I'm
5: I'm not going to take full credit for it, and I don't think that Pierce would either. But, you know, we are getting this country out of recession one returning emigrant at a time. Now, if you want to get a mention on hashtag P. I outlined some of the rules at the start of this. Uh, if you're actually still here in Ireland, then take a leaf from the book of Pierce.
3: Then maybe you shouldn't be living here!
5: If that clip from Taffin doesn't inspire you to become the best actor you can be, then quite frankly, lads, I don't want to know you. And again, we thank Pierce Brosnan and his team, Team Brosnan, as they're known for their support of this radio segment. And indeed, their hearty endorsement of this slot, right? Of course. All done through official D- Don't worry all the, uh, the T's are crossed. You've one
0: more story, Murph, just before we move on?
5: Well, yeah, we told you last week about the, the man who apparently refereed a game while parked in his car on the hill in uh, Kilbacenty in County Galway. <laughs> and uh, the story, courtesy of Galway goalkeeper James Gall, was that anytime he saw a free, he blew the horn and then used his indicators uh, to show which way the free was being awarded. So... <laughs> Big news on this front because uh, during the week we confirmed the story thanks to the Kilbacenty Hurling Club Facebook page. Uh, they got in touch with us. I can confirm that the man who refed the game from his car really took place and was local publican Florrie McCarthy RIP, a legend of uh, Kilbacenty hurling. So when we got back in touch to offer our condolences and, you know, thank them for getting in touch they told us that he'd also once refereed a game with a tin whistle. Uh, which, <laughs> I don't really know that we could have burnished this story anymore, You know, after the indicator part. But refereeing a game with a tin whistle, that that takes some beating. Oshie
0: McConville and Anthony Moyles are with us to talk football. No similar experiences, lads, before we...
9: There is a boy in our MA called Sam McClatchy. And uh, he's a big, a big chopper, he is too. But... Uh, he used to have a, a famous phrase, You keep talking, I'll keep walking. I remember watching him one day refereeing a match in Colville, and there was a free kick on the on the opposition's fourteen and it ended up on the on the on the attacking team's fourteen. They just kicked <laughs> it over the bar. <laughs> and you soon learn your lesson with Sam, you know, so yeah. He walked put, the entire fifty yards yeah. between the fourteen. But he refereed out. every match in the middle of the field. moved. Yeah, we we have
10: got I'm I'm back obviously out in meeting was playing junior and uh not that that makes any difference <laughs> refereeing wise, but uh, we had a lad, very, very honest referee, about two months ago in a league game. And uh, I went up for the, 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 the throw up. And he says to me, myself and the other captain, he said, Look, lads, he said, I've had a seriously hard night. He says, I've been out till about six this morning. <laughs> he says, The last thing I want to do now is referee. And he said, All I want to do really is take score and then just throw the ball at <laughs> half-time. Says, so let's keep it as clean as possible. I was like, right, fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. yeah, I like it. Hands-off <laughs> side of refereeing. Yeah, couldn't be, be any more than to 10 play. of my teammates in the same situation, so probably <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Exactly.
0: We didn't see the highest quality weekend of football just gone, but is it fair to say that Mayo were playing a different sport almost to the rest of the machine?
9: Yeah, Mayo's on, phew, Mayo's on a serious upward curve. The only thing is... How bad is football in, in Connacht, you know, that nobody can put up any sort of challenge. And I actually spoke to a couple of boys from Roscommon leading up to the match and they honestly thought that they would uh, put it up to Mayo big time. Uh the preparations very good. John Evans, very professional set up. Um but unfortunately if you don't have the players, you're not going to be successful in this game. Uh Mayo, their intensity and the thing I, I like about them is the way they've gone about their business so far, they were expected to win both games, let's be realistic about it, and they are expected to win comfortably, but the way they go about it, they go out and they do a professional job, Um, and, you know, Ruscom weren't in the game after 10-15 after minutes, realistically, okay, on the scoreboard, they were still close enough, but in every other manner, they were completely, totally and utterly outplayed, and that's Something which we spoke about the last day is systematic of what's happening in GA at the minute. The top eight teams um, were the teams in Division 1 this year. And I can almost guarantee you now that the, the teams uh, in 2015 in Division 1 will be those same eight teams. And they are way, way ahead of everybody else. This is
0: something Mickey Hart has been talking about for the last couple of years. And I don't know if people took him completely seriously at first, but it does seem that way now that you just can't... For whatever reason, the cream has risen to the top in the league, and those are the teams in the championship who are miles ahead of everyone else. Anthony,
10: yeah, um, I completely agree. You know, we we've spoken about it before. There is it, it is becoming two tier and maybe even three tier system, um, and it's down to all the different things, the science behind it, the training behind it, the money behind it. Um, and, and it's just every weekend now you kind of get a situation just like mayo Common. I thought Common would I, I thought Ruscom were kind of waiting in the long grass for Mayo um, talking to again I know a few of the lads uh, the Ruscommon lads and they were saying they were really looking forward to it but Does that make it harder to take do you think that they actually
0: thought they might have a chance Didn't pl- weren't prepared badly didn't play particularly badly but were just completely outclassed and at muscled
10: Yeah it does because you kind of you sit back in the dressing room and you just kind of go Okay, how far off are we? You know, and then what you also look at is, you might have three or four or five lads who are at that level, but then you have another four or five who are way off that level. Like I mean, Mayo have been building that for the last number of years. You know, I remember we played them in an All Ireland quarter final a number of years ago. And we 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 beat them, but you know they were a team that were kind of in transition. They were playing a, a long ball game, and they were just throwing it in all the time. Into I actually ended up full back that day, and you know it was relatively easy to play against. But but they have, if you look at the O'Shea's, they've power, they've pace. And then they've a spread of scores, you know. I heard people saying, "Oh, but they've no real marquee forwards." Like they've lost an awful lot of forwards from last year as well, and they've just kept kept bringing some new fellas through. But with Dylan and Andy Moran and these, they now have a lot of leaders as well. And I think the old saying that people will put on Mayo or oh, bottlers. and when they get to a final, they'll like. I mean, I just don't. I think this 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 new brand of players. Okay, they haven't yet won in all Ireland, of course, but. I just can't see you know, they they seem to be a professional setup. But I don't think there's any arrogance there. They just seem to be saying, Okay, here's our next challenge. We stick to what we know and we just blow teams away.
5: Yeah, I was really hit by that as well in the run up to the to the goal game that Horn was asked about, oh, you know, Gola and Mayo. There won't be any more than two or three points between between the teams, and he he just he he was very respectful in saying it, but he the uh, the implication was Mayo are a solid Division One team, Gola are mid-table Division Two. It was put to him that local rivalry. There's never anything yeah. to choose between the teams. Yeah, exactly, and he just I, I just don't buy that because, and I think that that's just indicative of the mentality of Mayo now. And Roscommon would have always the the entire footballing tradition in Roscommon is that they don't have the pick of Gola and Mayo, but that they'll put it up to them physically. They'll ask questions of Gola and Mayo physically, and if Gola and Mayo are on an off day, Common will catch them. And that's kind of the way that it's always been with, with Common football. And I think the, what we saw on Sunday was Mayo just have no respect for that anymore. They have no respect for people coming along and saying, we'll, we'll give you a rattle. I mean, they're ready for physicality. They're ready to step up to the mark. They're ready to be uh, actually a lot more physical than Roscommon were, uh, and they were on Sunday. And as a result, they're just much better footballers than Roscommon. And that's kind of what we saw. The game was over after 25 minutes. May for Sam? <laughs> well, you know, I, like, I think that they're a very, very good team. And I don't think that... I think that if they get beaten this summer, it'll be by a better team. They won't beat themselves. I think
9: I, they'll finish with being gallant losers. I think they're yep. really sick, sore and tired of hearing that. You know, Eden O'Shea was one player that I would have spoke to on and off. And he's really tired of that. You know, and and there's a real drive in that dressing room. Uh, most right. The the maybe one or two teams that may just have a little bit too much of them, but they won't be far away. No, and I think you know, as Ushin says,
10: that defeat last year really, really hurt him. Like I mean, you know, I was fellow said to me, I was kind of saying last year that actually Mayo played the better football after ten fifteen minutes of that All Ireland. The fans were saying, yeah, but it didn't matter. The game was over. But if you actually go back and watch that All Ireland final. Donegal were kind of scratching their head for a lot of that, you know, Donegal were panicked at certain times because Mayo opened them up, they took scores out wide, they played a great brand of football and you know, okay, you take the goals, etc. but they will they will genuinely look back in that game and say we left something behind us and we need to go and 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 rectify that this year.
5: The worst 20 minutes of Jim McGuinness's Donegal team was probably the, the, the 20 minutes after the couple of goals. The, the, from the 15th minute to halftime of last year's All-Iron final, it was probably the worst football that Donegal Duny- that Duny- have actually played under Jim McGuinness. Yeah,
9: They've they got the matchups wrong uh, straight away. They changed that after 20 minutes and they turned the thing around. Yeah, there are
5: solid won. tactical reasons why Mayo lost yeah. the All-Iron final last year, and it's right. nothing to do with you know, 1951 and counting.
0: When you look at a performance like Meads against Wicklow, Anthony, quite, probably the most entertaining game of the weekend, but is this indicative of what we talk about in terms of the gap between the top teams and the rest? Meads looked impressive in some of their scoring, but we're not
10: really talking about a Mayo standard team here. Yeah, you know, that's an honest opinion, and um, I'd have to agree with you. There, there, it was exciting game, um, but you only have to look at the amount of unforced errors, balls out over the end line, Hand passes going astray. You know, uh, Meade, when they moved the ball actually through the hands, were, were impressive, bringing Graeme Riley into it, you know, on the, on the burst. Pater did a lot of work. They were trying, to, the wind actually worked against both teams uh, when they had the wind. Like Meade, with the wind, were kicking balls out over the end line. They were trying to play their full forward line, but then they were either too slow at putting the ball in or putting it in too late or putting it in from static freeze. Um, and Wicklow already had men back there when they actually opened it up especially in the second half when they played against it after the initial little burst from Wicklow um, you know they kind of opened Wicklow up and they, they, they started to use their pace but you know everyone's talking about the penalty and the goal by Kevin Riley. it was a, it was a six actually a seven point swing um, and it would have been very interesting to see how that panned out in the second half where after. is a
0: team like me lacking though compared to a team like Mayo or the very top teams do go
10: <sighs> they're lacking probably in 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 that number of years that Mayo and Donegal have been on, on on like I mean you look at that mead team, Wallace started, okay, he's a new lad, young Eamon Wallace, he's only 18, 19 years of age. Paula Carnan came on, he was the mead minor captain last year. Uh, Mickey Newman is relatively new, Damian Carroll is new. You know, okay, you've got Stephen Bray, Seamus Kenny, Kevin Ryder. You still have a you still have a core group of fellas there who were there for the last number of years. But just that development of players and also belief you know, mead lads always will have belief, whether it's founded or unfounded. But the question on it is is they come into a big game. Mead will always fancy themselves. Like they fancy themselves. They'll put Wexford up now as favourites and they'll fancy themselves taking Wexford and then if they come in against Dublin or Claire, they'll fancy that. Um and they have a performance in them like that. But it it's it's the thing of the the I think what do you want to play? Do you want to play a running game? Do you want to play a long ball game? Do you want to play a fastball game? Mead has to start really trying to get their... get their Honing that tactical and that strategy well. Like, I mean, Donegal and Mayo have that down now.
0: Yeah, well, just the way you talk about that, Anthony, and particularly just the development that Mead need, those teams below the top eight that we talk about, O'Sean, the the talent level there, is it not strong enough that really any of those, a lot of counties in the top 16 counties in Ireland could do what Donegal have done over the last couple of years if they got the right man in place in, ter- in terms of the Donegal manager and got the right structures in place? Or is there a, a big enough gap that it's going to take more than just a charismatic manager or two or three years of development
9: to well, close? If, I think, first of all, it takes a plan. I think everybody buying into that. That comes from county board right down, to the, right down to the players. I think the structures have to be there. And I think what we've seen over this past while is you know, the top teams find it a lot easier to hold on to their players. You know, there seems to be, at the minute, a mass exodus of county players as soon as you're beating the championship that everybody heads for America. The top teams don't suffer from that because they know they have a realistic opportunity. I mean, Anthony says about Ruscomen, the Roscommon boys who, who felt going into uh, some of this game that they're a real opportunity. How do you get those fellas back off now for qualifiers? You've mm-hmm. got two weeks to get them back off for qualifiers. Oh, well, actually, they don't play for three weeks, so. But I still think it's nae on impossible that you know you go out and you take such a drubbing as Roscommon take. I mean, they don't have really have that much to play for now. So a team isn't going to be able to develop if. Of they, course, oh, they're going if, to be able to match there, is, there is there is teams out there who are going to develop. It's going to take them a couple of years, and they'll follow the model of of uh, of, a, of a Dublin or a Donegal or a Tyrone who are rebuilding. You know, it'll take that, but it has to start at under age. I think the perfect example of it and I don't think they're even close to being there yet, but it's Cavan, you know, who are progressing, who are taking on, young players. I mean, Mark is thirty one years of age, he was the oldest player on the on the Cavan team at the weekend. I think an average age of twenty two, something like that. I mean, you know, they are going in the right direction. I described them on Sunday as a watered down version of, of Donegal. But I think that's exactly what they are because the, physically they don't ha- they don't have it just yet. But they're building towards it. They've got a plan. Um you know, everybody thought Formana come out at the weekend try and counteract exactly. They play a lovely diamond system, or or sorry, a triangle where McDermott plays a, a on the forty-five. The two boys play inside. It worked awful well on Sunday because Formana were bringing players back, but they're bringing them back too far. Mm. Ray Matlasky was playing directly in front of the of the full back line, but Neil McDermott was able to pick up any outlet ball. He was able to play it into his forward line and. And sort of nullified the fact that Fermanagh had a sweep up, but and they kicked up lots and lots of wides, and they'll keep learning and all that there. But they're a team for me who have the perfect structures in place to try and go forward and maybe be challenged in three, four years. But this thing of a quick fix—let's bring in a high-profile manager, pay him whatever amount of money, and and all of a sudden, you know, we're gonna fix things. That's not the way it's fixed. It has to be fixed over a, over a a number of years or. I know RMI have introduced an academy and different things out there. Nobody expecting it in North for at least four or five years, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and you're seeing this, obviously, in Mead involved at underage level there. Anthony, are the structures in place now that maybe might have be yeah. been in place a few years back. No
10: they're, they're in place now Um, you know a brother of mine is involved with the under 14s and, the, and and the amount of work they're doing there they bring Sean Boyle and different fellas down at different weekends for a different training session and that, that's what needs to be done you know they have a massive pick um, and they're obviously just siphoning through but even at that the like guy never played minor never played under 21 for me you know so what will happen is there'll be fellas who play minor and you might only get one or two of them who come through um, but you certainly need to still, though, have that pedigree coming up. You need to be, and what happens to happen is under sixteen minor, as you're coming through, you need to know that you're able to compete at those levels. So when you actually go senior, you're able to say, well, okay, I'm coming up against Usher McConville. Well, I've played against him lots of times. You know, we've played Armagh lots of times, and we've we've bet Armagh, or we've played whoever it is. You know, or this is the standard, like Kilkenny in the Harlan, You know, Kilkenny young lads coming through. When as soon as they get handed a senior jersey, they just think, "Well, we need to maintain this because I'm not going to be the one who's going to lose in this jersey because what has happened before." So there's a, there's an element of, you know, what has gone on before has to change with, with with some counties, and you know, people can throw out whatever they want about Dublin, Tyrone, Donegal they have all done it. They've put it in place. You know, like, I mean, I've I've spoken before about Kilmacud and Nafina and these clubs who have put massive structures in place, not just two years ago, like 10, 12 years. Do you ago. have to, particularly at inter-county level at underage, do you have to put in a system
0: of playing that is going to replicate what the team will do? The whole Barcelona football system, you hear a lot about that, the way it's the same thing all the way up. Is that possible in Gaelic football?
10: You can, you can put it, but I don't think it's, it's generally possible. You play with who you have, you know, whatever players you have, you know, so yes there is always going to be a traditional way of playing you know, Armagh will play their way, Mayo will play their way, Mees will play their way and what you should do is, and I've spoken about this, you know, the, the, you, t- you take, say, what the what the seniors are trying to do, what the, what the meet under-21s are trying to do, the minors are trying to do, and what you should have is you should have a general kind of an idea of, well, what are we actually trying to do here? What style of play are we trying to do? And then the trainer or the manager from the seniors actually speaks to the trainer or manager of the under-21s, the minors, and even the 16s, and says, well, this is the way we want to go. You know, we want to play this type of football. So when you're bringing those lads through, will you work on these skills? Come into one of our training sessions, see how we do it. So in other words, just pull it together, like like any type of a business. You know, you bring it together, make it coherent, and um, and from there, fellows will then realize, okay, if I get a ball in this position, you know, Gaelic is is it's not as structured as, as as you would think, but there's still a lot of stuff that can be done from dead
9: balls from whatever it is. Yeah, plans from kickouts and different things. Yeah, and the thing you know I like about Dublin is it's not just the work that's gone on with the players, but the management structure, minor, under twenty one senior. You've got an opportunity if you go in at minor level that you're gonna progress into the nine teams out of ten, you're gonna progress, you know, into the senior management job in a couple of years. Whereas managers in other counties, you know, I know we had a pretty successful minor manager, but he seems to be, you know, surplus to requirements now. Rather than him making the breakthrough, he knows all he knows the majority of the players because, you know, we're taken from those teams that he's already had. And, you know, I like that structure that Dublin have in place because there's a bit of continuity. Uh, players uh, get to know managers, managers get to know players. You know, you're not going in, uh, you know, stale or you know, you know exactly who you're dealing with. You know the personalities you're dealing with. You've got to know them over a, a, a period of time, and those structures for me make the difference. You know along with the, actually the development of the players. Yeah,
5: and, if, and if Dublin can do that, given the amount of, huge amount of clubs, huge amount of players that they have, I mean, it should be so much easier for much smaller counties to pick the five or six guys who are fresh out of inter-county football that are managing at club level and say, right, here's the, the pathway to success. For you five or six guys, you're going to take minor, you're going to take under-21. And there's a, a, even a le- leaving aside the players, there's a pathway for coaches. Okay. To, to What if to the coaches the do
9: badly, though? Well, the coaches do badly. That speaks for itself. Get rid of them. Mm-hmm. But you see what but happens you, did, is did, did, you know take my point. You, you
0: might have this succession plan in place, but if the coaches aren't of that, a high enough caliber, well, that all goes
9: out the window. That's what I'm saying. Nine teams out of ten, I think they'll progress. I think if you if you've got a coach who obviously you know isn't cutting the mustard, well then you just got to cut him cut him loose or give him an alternative position. Maybe he walks well at underage and he mightn't necessarily walk as well. I've seen that before. It mightn't necessarily walk as well, you know, with the with the older players or the senior teams.
0: All right, Murph, the qualifier draw has been made and I'm going to put it to you that the big guns have avoided each other.
5: Yeah well I've seen this written quite a few places and I'm kind of thinking Tyrone is the only big gun in this <laughs> so after that you can kind of uh, pretty much leave it at that that they're the, they're the only really big team in it and it is. It, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about as well Tyrone obviously are playing awfully of and there are seven other games there and I would defy anyone to be able to pick the seven winners of these games because you're you're talking about teams that are playing very much at a similar level in a lot of these games and it's it's nearly turning into the the B championship that people keep talking about. You know the the fact that we have these eight great teams, and then there's maybe eight more after that. And you know the sixteen should play off for the All Ireland Championship, and then the the next the bottom sixteen should play off for some sort of B All Ireland title. Well, the qualifiers basically is that B championship now. In that, you know, there's there, there all of those games. It's really really hard to pick a winner, and it's really hard to get excited about a lot of them. Yeah, it is. It is kind of because you know they're just they're going to get eaten alive in round three or round four when the really big teams come into it.
10: <laughs> yeah. Um, anyone who does an accumulator on this and comes out and <laughs> yeah, go, he's done a serious amount of work. Uh, you know, it's it's Tyrone Offaly is obviously the standout one. Uh, but as Murph says, you genuinely go a tip. I wouldn't even be so sure. Now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Laudantrum, Armagh, Wicklow. There's lots and lots of permutations. Um, I think Murph is right. The, the 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 trophy that's for I I think teams in this level um is to get to the 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 August bank call of the weekend into the quarterfinals that's that's a massive one you know and if you can get there well then that doesn't seem to energize players though as we were saying players a lot of them have
5: left some of these counties
0: after they yeah got yeah their I saw
10: another I think Andy McDonald uh, well, has gone Andy from that,
5: um you know over to the states um, Gareth Bradshaw has gone from Galway Leash have lost three players and another I'm two lost apparently four you know, yeah. it's, it's pretty strange. It's strange, you know. Why
0: isn't this a carrot though? If you're approaching a summer, are you not thinking, in some cases it's work and people have different things going on in their lives, but as an intercounty footballer, are you not thinking, right? I'm, go- I'm at least going to put a couple of months of the summer aside, whether we get through our provincial championship or a couple of qualifier games, is that not the way a player
9: would approach their planning for the year? You would like to think so, especially a lot of intercounty teams start in November now, maybe even December, and uh, the amount of work they've put in mm. to, for just one game and then to to head off to America, for me seems crazy. But again, it's it's the way the game has gone. It seems it, like if that's already in your head, it's not a great place to start mentally. That you're thinking, right? I, yeah, you know, if we lose, it's not the end of the world. I'm off to Boston next week. Yeah, and I've heard moments of of other players who are just, you know, sitting around waiting on on the inevitable to happen, and away they go. Mm-hmm. You know, they've yeah. they've basically, you know, they've booked, and that's one of the problems about eight teams separating themselves from everybody else in the country you know, what? That's this is a by-product of that. I mean, yep. the, the qualifiers, sorry Anthony, the qualifiers, I mean, there's no real huge game there. And the, I think no matter how they come out of the hat, there was still going to be no major, major, you know, game. Derry
5: maybe, you know, like Derry were uh, good well, in Division 2. But I, mean that's I wouldn't
9: be surprised if Sligo beat, beat Derry, that's to be yeah. quite honest with you. You know, because I've, I'm hearing there's a little bit of unrest in Derry. You know, it is the time of year for it, I suppose, in Derry, But <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a little bit of unrest, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Sligo end up beaten. that. you want to just come in there and the point about
0: players heading off?
10: Yeah, like I mean, it's 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 an economic thing, but it's also, you know, you look at it and players are like players are intelligent fellows. Uh, you know, generally most of these fellows either in college or they're working or different stuff. And they say to themselves, realistically, let's say the Common lads, for example. You go out, you're tuned up, you have a new manager, you do everything that he's asked of you, you feel that you go into a game massively prepared and you get bet like you got bet at the weekend. You sit at home this week and you think to yourself, and all of a sudden a phone call comes through, how do you fancy coming out to New York? Here's a few bob, we'll set you up with a job, whatever it is. Mm. And you say, really, and realistically in your own heart you say, how many more games are we going to win? We might win the next one or we might get pulled out against Tyrone, and that's the end of me. Then you probably weigh up okay will the manager be there next year? Am I really putting myself I'm probably one of the marquee players on the team so I'll probably get back on the team next year. So it's probably a relatively easy decision for some fellas. Alright Murph next weekend? Next weekend we have London against Leitrim uh, which
5: should be good and it actually it actually could be good (laughs) and uh, Donegal against Down next Sunday and Cavan and Donegal I mean, we're kind of talking about Mayo, uh, Procession, and Connacht. Dublin, everyone is expecting to win in Leinster and Donegal. We're not really expecting a whole lot of a
9: challenge for Donegal and Ulster, are we? I expect Darren to put a serious challenge after them. I know uh, Donegal's going to be missing uh, Neil Gallagher and Carol Lacey this weekend. So that's a major uh, linchpin up the middle of their defence. Uh, Carol Lacey, when he come on against their own. He didn't do a lot, but his presence and mm. uh, his cuteness on the ball uh, probably got Donegal over the lane whenever they looked as if they were, they were struggling slightly. So uh, I expect Down to pull it up to them. But,
5: but <laughs> defensively, don't, do Down have it? Defensively? No, defensively,
9: they'll probably get you out of life. But um, I still think that midfield, I think Callum King, as I spoke about him the last day, exceptional. Kevin McKernan going forward. And as a forward unit, they're pretty good. I know they won't get the space they got against Derry, but. They'll still give Donegal a hell of a game. I
5: but hope your cousin gets out alive anyway.
9: Yeah, well, uh, I warned him. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away from
5: the
10: big boys. Just the McGee. That's what I did. For yeah, you had the, yeah, had the rest of the baby. But keep moving, <laughs> keep moving. Yeah. Adity? I think the Gallagher's a massive loss. Massive, massive loss. You know, uh, up at the game the last day, Tyrone did relatively well in the middle of the field and Gallagher was the one who, if there was any catching a ball or breaking a ball to be done, he was the one. Rory Kavanagh wasn't really in it. Um, and or Down have some big, big men across that middle. So... I think Oshin's right I think they'll put it up to them. I think it'll be closer than a lot of people think bri- I'll
5: take the handicap and whatever else you're throwing at me
10: Brilliant stuff and I do just have to uh,
0: thank Oshin for coming in but particular thanks to Anthony Moyles who's played through the pain barrier here yeah, I don't know how he's managed to. Can you describe what you're looking disgusting at?
5: Disgusting wounds I've, I've ever seen really, really He's broke his little his little pinky finger playing junior football <laughs> so he has it wrapped in some sort of like foot-long splinter I mean what are we actually is this a, it's a cracked nail I think it is
10: really is what I'm looking at here is it? You yeah, it's actually a little bit of callus just underneath. Right, yeah, you, know, so, <laughs> you got to yeah. watch that. That will spread. You know. It will, it will. And uh, you know, it's it's it just you have to take every precaution. Yeah, no, you're absolutely That's right.
4: Brilliant stuff. Thank you. Hair dryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by yes. a furious blast of the temper. The hair dryer with which uh,
6: Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer. I think at David Beckham. What oh,
0: was
4: He threw a hair at David. Beckham, uh,
3: in the is that
4: right? No, 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 no second captains at the irish
5: times available tuesdays on itunes and irishtimes.com
0: the cousin in question there Oshin McConville's cousin, by the way, is Donal O'Hare, the down forward. Just in yep. case, Murph, people aren't as familiar as yourself with the... Oshin <laughs> McConville's extended family. <laughs> extended family playing... Yeah. I'm a close personal friend
5: of Oshin now, so I know all of his many, many first cousins. When
0: we talked about that a couple of weeks ago after Down had impressed in the last round, he was saying that, look, a lot of these forwards, you look at them and you wouldn't pay 2p for them, I think is what he said, yeah. based on their physical appearance. A few small guys in there, but he thinks they can do a bit of a job on Donegal while maybe conceding too much at the other end.
5: Yeah, and uh, I think a point that is worth raising in relation to the Kevin Fermanagh game as well, is you see Martin Dunn and he's scored, I think it's 14 points in the Championship so far this year, 11 of them from play, and uh, you're just looking at him and thinking, God, he, he seems to be having such a good time, you know. And then he's gonna meet Donegal and they're probably going to tear him limb from limb, you know. It's uh you know, there's there's an element of nearly feeling sorry in advance. He's a small, slight skinny Man, footballer. He's he's very, very small, but he's very, very good. Uh and came through I mean the Armagh game we been we were talking about at the time, Armagh just gave him carte blanche to do what he liked. Skinniest
0: footballer in history, you
5: Whoa, well, <laughs> He's got to, I'm, sure they were, I'm sure they were all skinny back in the 70s and 80s. It's now he just looks so skinny compared to everyone else who appears to be you know, on a weight program Brian, or
0: something. Yeah, Brian Stafford was skinny. Though.
5: Well, he had skinny legs. I think up top he wasn't too bad. They all had legs skinny were, legs back then. His legs they? were very skinny. Actually, Colm O'Rourke had very skinny legs as well. It was only the knee bandage that artificially gave him the, you know, the impression of wide legs. Ken, give me more. Joke in here, please.
4: Joe Kinnear has a three-year contract as Newcastle United's new director of football. And as he revealed on TalkSport last night when he was speaking to Andy Goldstein, this, is, uh, this shouldn't really come as such a surprise to people. I mean, this is a man with a serious, serious record in the game.
6: So, you know, and I look at my record, they keep saying to me, what did I do? I mean, where have where these people been? Have they been on another planet? I've played in five cup finals and won the lot. I've had over 400 games for Tottenham Hotspur. I've been manager the year three times. I've travelled the world as a manager. You know, this job come up, which I thought was a, a fairly <clears throat> responsible job, it's got nothing to do. All, 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 already they're jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, oh, watch out, Pardo, oh, watch out this. But that's the snidey press. That's the people up there or around that area that I've are upset and they have a grudge. So, I expect it, but it's, it's
4: so you know, it's water off a duck's arse, water off a duck's arse again. Yeah, back is usually the same, but I suppose arse works as well. It's although lower back, it's often submerged in water, I suppose. That's an impressive CV, em- he it is, and uh, very few of the things he said there were actually true. Owen, uh, 400 games for Tottenham, a bit, bit less than that, you know, five cup finals, four cup finals, but you know, maybe we're. We're nitpicking a bit here. Manager of the year three times. Manager of the year one time, which is still a great achievement, but it's not the same as three. Uh, I think Alex Ferguson has won it four times, to put, to put three in perspective. <laughs> and, uh, you know, travel the world as a manager. Well, it's true that he's been, for instance, out to Nepal. But when he refers there to the snidey press who who are out to get him, I mean, he did come in, and we we know what he said to them. I mean, he said... He picked out Simon Bird from the mirror first and he, he abused them all sort of in turn. Um,
0: this was back in his, when he was managing when he was
4: When he was managing Newcastle and, and, you know, it didn't go that well. He, he talks about being manager of Nepal and he, and he told them in that former stint as Newcastle manager about his friendship with the crown prince there and how everything was going great in Nepal until the crown prince uh, took exception to the fact that he was being forced into an arranged marriage against his will and murdered his parents. Uh, at which point Joe Kinnear had to flee the country. He didn't really fear for his own life, but he did flee the country at that point. It turned out when they went to write up this incredible story, um, and, and pretty much all of the of the journalists who've been covering Newcastle, you know, George Culkin wrote a good version of it in the Times, they discovered that, in fact, Joe Kinnear left the job of Nepal manager 14 years before the Crown Prince uh, committed this terrible deed. And they were just looking at it. In 1987, he leaves. 2001, this happens. He's managing Luton. He's claiming to be airlifted out of there. You know, what? what's going on? So it was difficult for them to, to understand. The one thing that is easy, though, for Joe for Joe Kinnear is well, I mean, it's going to be easy to for Alan Pardew to understand exactly what's going on here because the situation regarding responsibilities for the job as Joe Kinnear comes in, there's Derek Lambias or Lambiezie as Kinnear calls him, uh, there's Alan Pardew, uh, there's Graham Carr, the scout, but the delineation of responsibility couldn't be more clear. I mean, who has the final say in transfers? Uh,
6: we both do. We both do. He's the manager and we we'll, we 'll sit down and discuss it we have, we have Graham Carr, who's up from Newcastle up there, and uh, he also has a say in the matter we 'll discuss it uh, you know and we look at the strengths and weaknesses between us no one 's got an ego i haven 't got an ego.
4: It sounds like that the arrangement is quite simple, and it should should work without any any big problems i mean that 's within the club internally within the club i can 't see any friction here i can 't see any potential ways Joe which Kinnear this is also, could become derailed
0: sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Joe Kinnear has also done a great job of hiding his lack of ego yeah.
4: he says he doesn't have an ego
0: some of the other comments that he made in the course of the interview as we've already played would yeah. suggest that maybe well so a bit of an ego.
4: such, such uh, so small an ego has he that he doesn't hasn't even really appeared to pay that much attention to the events of his own life mm, he's, he's
5: mis- I mean every, what's next that's what Joe Kinnear says you know he 400, 240 whatever games for Spurs yeah. you know what's next he he's he's so free of ego that he's actually forgotten nearly all of the biographical details of his own of his you know, own because, life. That's really because what
4: what does it matter? You know, he's mm-hmm. just a grain of sand on the beach, really. You know, when you uh, the, the other thing though, I mean, you've you've obviously as he's referred already to the snidey media, and that's going to be a problem because you know you you got some really poisonous people out there, snakes in human form. You know, Scon. they're, they're going to try <laughs> and and sink their fangs in. Uh, and, and pump poison in and because that's their job, you know, so that's what they do um, but you've also got the fans, they're stakeholders too Owen. and Joe Kinnear concluded the interview in Talk Sport with a message to us fans, which we're now going to hear in full
6: Sorry, Well, <laughs> to all the new cars fans, who don't do this decision shall I bring Lambazy back in you know, what, what do you want what do they want? And I heard that silly comment, what can I attract? I can open the door to any football manager in the world. Anyone. That's the difference. I can talk, I can pick up, I spent my whole life picking the phone, talking to Alex Ferguson. Week in, week out. What would you do? What would you do? What would you do? I can pick the phone up at any time of the day and speak to Arsene Wenger. I can pick the phone up and speak to any manager in the league. Any manager. In all divisions. So, you know, I don't know what angle they've got. They want to sit down and argue with me. Some of them are just talking out the backside, a load of tosh. And, uh, you know, I'm not accepting it. It's as simple as that. I've certainly got more intelligence than them, that's for sure.
4: That's my favourite part of the entire interview. (laughs) It's that entire segment there, incredible. Yeah. Not much ego, but a lot more intelligence.
5: That's one of the strangest pleas for unity within the club I've ever heard, (laughs) I must say. Yeah. What would you do, Fergie?
0: All right, it's probably getting a little bit easy to laugh at Jokaneer's comments. But I think what's probably funnier, Ken, is the fact that this appointment has been made. Mike mm. Ashley's done some strange things as owner of Newcastle. But this is amongst the strangest. And not even the appointment itself, but the way Jokaneer has been speaking since And if you're Alan Pardew, it would strike me if I was Alan Pardew. Hang on, are they just trying to make me walk out of here?
4: Mm. Alan Barger is one year into an eight-year contract,
0: so it's distinctly possible they might want to be trying to force his hand. In. I'm
4: not, I'm not totally convinced that he's still going to be there in seven years' time, as you know, finishing it off that contract. I don't believe it's necessarily going to happen, even though Joe Kinnear will probably be able to give him some valuable help.
0: Yeah, this is completely unworkable, isn't it? The way it's set out at the moment.
4: Well, you know, you never know. Um, I mean, Joe Kinnear maybe. Maybe he, he says he runs into Alan Pardew at the at the league manager's uh, dinner at the end of every season. He said when Pardew won the Manager of the Year, which remember was just the season before last, uh, Kinnear said, "Well done, Al, but you'll need uh, you'll need two more to catch up with me." <laughs> so, uh, I mean, actually, he's he's equalised he's equalised Joe Kinnear in terms of Manager of the Year. He did win three Manager of the Month awards that season that he won Manager of the Year. So, possibly the months and years have become uh, mixed up there, but you know. It does seem like a, a very strange move. It's obviously, uh, you know, Mike Ashley has a lot of respect for Joe Kinnear. Maybe it's that unrivaled network of contacts that he spoke about. Uh, maybe Alan Paradew can't get Alex Ferguson on the phone anymore since Ferguson told him, he forgets the help I gave him, by the way. Do you remember that last season? Uh, Pardew said something to Ferguson. that uh, said something about a refereeing decision in Manchester United-Newcastle game. And Ferguson uh, rounded on him a little bit and said, he forgets the help I gave him, by the way. So maybe Joe Kinnear is needed to to bridge that gap to to Ferguson, who I suppose is no longer a manager, but uh, I guess is still a worthwhile worthwhile guy to get advice of.
0: Let's chat about what's been going on in
8: Brazil.
4: which is which appeared on a website uh, copaimquiaba.com.br which is actually a, a tournament related website which was hacked and replaced with this footage of these protests so you hear the protesters uh, chanting sen violencia meaning no uh, no violence and the police who you can't see in this audio clip are lined up with their shields the riot riot police sort of shock troopers and as the people chant "No violence," they respond with uh, tear gas, rubber bullets uh, and a lot of loud bang- uh, you know stun grenades and things that you can hear in the uh, in the clip there. so an absolutely crazy situation that seems to be happening generally all over Brazil at the moment.
0: We'll post a link to that audio and video clip on facebook.com forward slash second captains and twitter at second captains we're joined now from brazil by tim vickery tim can you give us a bit more detail on what exactly has been happening overnight there
3: well with uh, protests that started just over a week ago in sao paulo have now taken over this giant country and even spread all over the world and protests in dublin for example and uh, it's it's leaving the Brazilian authorities, I think, absolutely perplexed because I don't think anyone foresaw this. The first issue was an increase in the cost of public transport, a relatively small increase. And I think because of that, perhaps this wave of protest was initially uh, underestimated um, because there are, there are real reasons for this protest. And as it spread... And the organisers are trying to keep it as broad as possible, as non-party political as possible. Uh, the, the, the common point in all of the protests is a misuse of public funds. is bad government, bad, inefficient, corrupt public spending. Uh, and uh, clearly uh, the Confederations Cup and the World Cup serve as a kind of lightning rod for so many of, of these issues. Because uh, Brazilian society was explicitly lied to back in 2007 when Brazil was uh, um, uh, declared World Cup host. Because the line from the government and the football authorities was all of the money to be spent on stadiums will be private money, with public money to be used for things that the society badly needs, especially public transport. The importance here of public transport in, in, in that context because what's, what's actually happened is that hugely expensive stadiums have been built all over the country um, some of them will be uh, used very much, some of them you really wonder where the viability is and they've been, uh, they've been paid for by the Brazilian taxpayer and in the rush, corners have been cut especially on that issue of public transport um, so the society has uh, especially the young members of, of society have decided that they're not getting their money's worth from their government and i, I don't blame them one bit um, what what is is really perplexing I think to the Brazilian authorities is that all of this is confounding uh, uh, an image that Brazil has of itself of being a country where the people are, are resigned and passive and and uh accepting bad government and I think what we're, what, what what we're seeing here I think you can perhaps draw comparisons with, uh, with, with the 60s in, in Europe or the 60s in the United States. We're seeing here a new generation, children of the boom, because Brazil has changed a great deal. It hasn't changed enough, but it's changed a great deal in the last decade or so. And the last dec- decade or so has, has been boom time. And, and the, 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 the youngsters, I mean, it's mainly young people who are out making this happen, out protesting north and south of the country. I think the interesting thing about the, the, these, these youngsters is that they're, they're children of the boom. And being children of, of the boom, that, that first of all, that, that takes away an element of fear. And secondly, these are kids who, in their lifetime, they have seen dramatic change. So they know that change is possible, and they want to see much, much more of it. So and this really is an absolutely fascinating moment. Where it's going to go, where it's going to take us, where it's going to lead, I don't think anyone knows. And there, there is obviously the, the, the possibility, the worrying possibility, that it will lead us down one or two dangerous paths. It will lead us into into deaths, and even into one or two anti-democratic directions along with, within this broad church movement. But to see Brazilians take to the streets in this way, and, and to see Brazilians put public transport on the political agenda, I think is quite inspiring.
4: Yeah, and you know, Tim, some of the images that we've been seeing are, are spectacular. I mean, there's there's demonstrators sort of trying to storm a building um, described here as the Legislative Assembly of uh, Rio de Janeiro. I mean, really dramatic scenes, huge protests in the streets, the kind of thing that we've seen in, in Turkey and in Egypt. Um, what is, uh, I think, dramatic as well about this in the in in the rest of the world, at least on, on one level, is that, and um, this seems to have erupted at almost to coincide with this football tournament that's taking place. Um, the World Cup next year seems to be one of the main uh, symbols, I suppose, of the waste and corruption, and um, that the protesters are are angry about. So here in the greatest football country on earth, uh, FIFA's World Cup has become uh, a symbol of uh, of injustice and corruption.
3: Indeed, yeah, and it is much, much more than just the World Cup. It goes much, much deeper than just the World Cup. But the World Cup is such a powerful symbol, and, and some of the the banners, that just the improvised banners that people are holding up in these protests. You know, if uh, if your kid is sick, take him to the stadium. You know, it, it, it's people who are who are fed up with the level of of public services. Um, and uh, this is something which is being mentioned time and time again by the protesters and the media are going there and interviewing them. It's inadequate education system, inadequate health system, inadequate, inadequate public transport. And in a country with these pressing priorities, how can we justify spending so much on football stadiums? And uh, it's, it's clear to me that these these, these people have a point. Um, I've, I've I've been saying all along. We, we, we've spoken about uh, this subject many times over the years. That uh, first of all, it is problematic holding these uh, mega FIFA events in the developing world. Um, for FIFA, it's a it's a non-risk project, and FIFA make that uh, their their money from the sale of TV rights, and then make all sorts of demands on the host nation. Uh, and but there are clearly problems with that. But then again, Brazil accepted these when, uh, when uh, it accepted the mission of being World Cup host. Uh, and uh, uh, Brazil's um, preparations, and you'd probably give Brazil one out of ten for writing its name on the exam paper, but then you'd have to check that it's spe- it, it, it spelled its own name right because it really has been very, very poor. Um, and it, Brazil knew in March of 2003 that it would be hosting the 2014 World Cup. You would think when the name came out of the envelope over four and a half years later, October 2007, you would think that Brazil would have cho- chosen its host cities, hadn't done a thing to choose its host cities, wouldn't do a thing to choose its host cities. FIFA wanted to keep it simple with eight host cities. Brazil successfully lobbied for 12, but then wouldn't take the responsibility for naming them. Push that to FIFA. That's more years wasted. The decision on the host cities came in May 2009, so that's six years after Brazil knew it would be hosting the World Cup. And uh, all of that had a cost because uh, anyone acquainted with Brazil will know the old uh, the phrase of, uh, of Ian Fleming's brother, Peter Fleming from the 1930s, a man in a hurry in Brazil will always be unhappy. Once so many years have been wasted to delays, once Brazil was so slow to get out, get out of the blocks, that means that the price of everything goes up and uh, uh, the, the possibility of doing everything goes down. So uh, Brazil is left with... New stadiums, very impressive new stadiums, but very, very expensive new stadiums, some of which, as I say, are, are of limited validity, limited, uh, limited long-term viability. And it's left with not enough time to put into practice the uh, the, the urban mobility projects that are the best thing that the society could have got from this tournament. So the anger of the people... Um, with the way that the World Cup has been organized and with the priorities of their own government in general, I think that anger is perfectly justified.
4: Just lastly, Tim, we've spoken to you, I think, again, a couple of times in the past about uh, Dilma Rousseff, the Brazilian president, and uh, you've always explained to us that she's quite a popular figure, you know, with a, uh, with a history of, of protest against uh, a pretty uh, rough government, you know, back when, when she was young in the 60s. Um, we saw her standing beside Sepp Blatter at this match uh, over the weekend getting booed. It seems she's not quite as popular anymore. I mean, obviously, some of the boos are going to be for Bladder, but some of them are for uh, Rusev too. What do you think she can do to um, to, to appease these protesting crowds? I mean, where, where does she go from here?
3: Well, I think that the political class have been thrown it's totally off balance here. I mean, this really is proof of, of Harold Wilson's old dictum that a week is a long time in politics. What do they do? Well, uh, I think there's, there's been some wisdom, in reducing the level of police truculence. Um, I think had the police nationally behaved in the way that the Sao Paulo police behaved just over a week ago when this thing started, we would have seen deaths yesterday. So that, that, that's one thing which, which, which has happened, which, which we can be grateful for. Um, it looks to me as if the political class are considering a climb-down on the increase in the public transfer transfer fares, which sparked the whole thing off. Whether that will be enough to reduce the momentum of this protest movement, I really don't know. And to be honest, I don't think anyone knows. Um, And that, that is part of the fascination of these events. No one really knows where it's going to lead. Uh, and specifically, on returning specifically to, to the, the, the idea of the Confederations Cup, we're seeing demonstrations outside the stadiums for these games. Now, what happens there? Are they going to get bigger? Are we going to see the tournament under threat? Uh, th- to be honest, no one knows where this process is going to take us. Uh, and uh, th- that that uh, is, uh, is in some ways, a worrying thought, because with the amount of firearms that are around in Brazilian society, you know, once you unleash some of these forces, this could take us in, in, in dangerous directions. I think the only thing we, conclude, we can conclude is that, that we are living in very, very interesting times.
0: Tim Vickery in Recife. Thanks so much for taking us through that tonight. Thank you. The booing of Sepp Blatter, Ken, and Rousseff, President Rousseff of Brazil that we referenced, it's become a much smaller part of what's yeah. been going on there, but I think it behoves us just to have a little look back at that because the way that happened over the course of about a minute, minute and a half was hilarious. The booing starts up, Blatter sort of looks around, assuming this probably isn't for me, it must be for the president, yeah. she must not be too popular here. They both give it a bit of the uh this thing on kind of yeah. thing with the microphone.
4: It's sort of blowing on the,
0: <laughs> on the mic. And eventually start talking and the booze just...
4: Continue. Continue, yeah, and you can see how much more practice Seth Platter is at being booed in a stadium than, say, George Osborne when he appeared at the Paralympics and uh, and he was booed by the 80,000 crowd at the Paralympics in the Olympic Stadium in London and the camera lingered on his face and uh, first he tried to laugh it off. He uh, he sort of, ha ha ha-ha-ha, but then grew slowly uh, more and more crestfallen until eventually, he was just completely slumped there, sort of broken and defeated. Whereas Sepp Blatter actually lectured the crowd, he sort of scolded them and he's saying, "Well, you know, where's your respect? Where's your fair play?" And you know, handed it over to to the president as as though to say, "You know, these guys, you know, what what, what can you do? You know, I'm I'm sorry, Madam President, that they're all booing you like that, but this is Sepp Blatter's achievement. You know, the World Cup, which was once the you know." <laughs> It was it was a dream for a country to host the World Cup, and now it's a nightmare. It's FIFA comes in, you know, to to borrow the Matt Taibbi phrase, you know, the vampire squid wraps its tentacles around the head of the country, jams its blood funnel into anything that smells like money, takes all the profit tax free, leaves the host country with the bill and I suppose people are waking up to what a fraud it is.
0: Speaking of some of the world's top sports administrators, Pat McQuaid has had a bad week, <laughs> a really, really bad week. <laughs> that was a
5: good segue. i Fairness. <laughs> got to give the man his, his due there.
0: Cycling Ireland voted against the motion to propose him as the next UCI president. He may well still get the Swiss nomination, assuming that one holds up over in the Swiss courts. But he's played this one badly. He bypassed the EGM of Cycling Ireland by going straight to Swiss Cycling, which didn't play well with a lot of the members there. He wasn't there in person to do the old schmoozing and maybe impressing some of these guys who haven't met sports administration royalty in the past. And he only sent his email to clubs uh, explaining why they should vote for the nomination after a lot of them had already decided. So it seems like he could have done a little bit more. But given what's going on at the UCI at the moment, it might be somewhat understandable that his attention was turned a little closer to the centre of power there. Because we had Brian Cookson on the show last week, president of British Cycling, the guy running against Pat McQuaid. Uh, became clear during that interview, Ken, I think that this guy is not going to go on all-out attack mode. No. He's going to be maintaining the moral high ground and all this. But the claws are coming out a small bit because there was the UCI Management Committee meeting late last week. And Mike Plant, he's one of the members there, vice president of the Atlanta Braves baseball team. He's gone and produced a report Involved for which uh, he's enlisted the help of private investigators making allegations against McQuaid. Now, we don't know the details exactly of what's in there. It's thought that some of them relate to McQuaid's relationship with Lance Armstrong. That's what's been reported. Anyway, Cookson has said, I have to respect the confidentiality of the Management Committee with regards to the content of the dossier with which we were presented. But what I can say is I was disturbed by what I heard, and I've been assured that it will be properly investigated. So the fact that even Cookson feels empowered to have a bit of a pop at uh, Pat McQuaid here would lead you to believe that that he's in quite a bit of trouble at the moment uh, heading into the elections in a couple of months' time. Now, it is time for one of our favourite slots on the show.
8: Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no
7: matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behaviour. You're
3: being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there.
6: Three calls and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And he's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's gonna let him keep
8: going. You're oh, Touchdown! Touchdown Four! One <laughs> oh, second class in the game. You believe in miracles?
0: Yes! Brian Murphy, how are you this week?
8: I am so good and. So stoked to be back on the show with you boys, man. This is uh, the second time now in our new incarnation, and uh, couldn't be happier. Summertime around the corner here in America. Uh, the sun is shining. We've got a lot of drama going on these days here in American sports, and uh, I know you boys are all over it, so glad to be here.
0: We are, and the biggest story for the U.S. sports fan at the moment is the basketball. We'll get to that a little later. I do want to ask you about the golf, though. Phil Mickelson looked like he took this one pretty hard.
8: How about that? Oh my gosh! You know, it's funny. My, my my personal feelings of Phil have evolved over the years. For years, for whatever reason, I won't get into it too much. I just I did. I was not a Phil supporter. I just kind of I don't know. I thought he was a phony baloney, is what I thought. And uh, the years have actually shown to me. while he's not perfect, and you know, a lot of these billionaire athletes have their flaws. That's for sure. I, I've heard of a number of good stories about Phil through the years that have kinda earned won me over about him as a person so i've actually turned into a phil fan believe it or not ten years ago i thought that was unthinkable but now i'm actually a bit of a phil fan and i certainly thought as far as stories go in america's national championship our u s open he was the runaway even before the tournament started for what would be the best story now but he's so unpredictable and he's so erratic you know he could show up and miss the cut you know but what does he do? He delivers from day one, even before day one, guys. The story about flying out to San Diego to his daughter's eighth-grade graduation stole the pre-tournament thunder and made Phil again into this, you know, wacky character. What will Phil do? You never know. And for him to fly into Marion, which, you know, you guys know a basic bit of geography. geography San Diego to Philadelphia is not a short flight. It's like flying across the entire continent of Europe. So, you know, touching down, what, two hours before his tea time and going to play this beast of a course with that rough up to your, you know, your calves, and it was all wet and soggy and those long par threes and everything that Marion presented, and for him to go shoot 67 from day one, he just became, you know, the controlling story all week long, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, into Sunday with the 54-hole lead. And of course, all you had was all of Philadelphia ready to go crazy. Even had the, even the name of the city, guys, Philadelphia, right? We we're going to go Philadelphia story. And I thought this was it. I really did. I thought, you know what? At age forty-three, on his forty-third birthday Sunday, this is the this is the right place. It's the right week. It, you know, for him to have uh, come off that family outing and the golf he was playing. And with Phil, he's a real feel energy guy, and he was kept saying how. How good he felt at the course and how much energy he was getting from Marion. You got guys like Zach Johnson who said that the course was manipulated and he hated the USGA setup. Those were all negative attitudes. Phil had the exact opposite. He had total positive energy going the whole week, and I thought, you know what? He's going to do it. Five runners up, five second place finishes at the US Open, and now he's going to get it. It's going to be a fantastic story, it's going to be emotional. And then you see him double bogey the third hole, double bogey the fifth hole, and you're thinking, Phil, what's going on? But the whole time, guys, I kept thinking Marion is so hard, and guys are going to be making so many bogeys that he's still in this thing. Then he holds out for eagle on number 10, and you figure it's fate, right? It's going to work. Well, guess what? More Phil heartbreak. Those wedges on 13 and 15, guys, are the ones he's going to rue, especially the 13th hole, the easiest hole on the course. He made bogey. Justin Rose made birdie. And then the other aspect of it was how Rose finished. How Rose plays that played that 18th hole. Justin Rose goes down in history as one of the great 18th hole performances in U.S. Open history. And heartbreak for Phil. He really did this one. I think sapped. You know, sometimes Phil will come at you and say, you know, it's okay. You know, I got my family and my health, and I'm happy. This one, I think, really broke his heart and a lot of people in the gallery's heart too. But if there was going to be anybody to scoop up the the debris, Justin Rose sure was the. Uh, a very, very nice story to alternate, the, the alternate story. So a lot of drama from that one. I, I really enjoyed that Open.
0: Clearly the big deal was being made of him having never won the U.S. Open, six runners-up places now. Uh, he's also never won the British Open, though, and he's only won the U.S. PGA once, Brian. So the question is, away from Augusta National at the majors, is Phil a bit of a phony baloney?
8: Well, you know, the British Open and him have never gotten along. I just talked to you about that energy and feel that he gets. For whatever reason... He just has never come over to a British Open even though he comes over and he plays the Scottish Open the week before and then he plays the British Open uh you know he he shows up and signs up some guys stay away he just he just doesn't play well at British Opens and a lot of it is people think it's because he hits a very high ball and British Open in the wind on many links courses often requires a, a lower trajectory uh, a more a game more on the ground uh, so there's kind of sort of a golf reason why he doesn't play well at British Opens, but he keeps trying, and he darn near. Uh, just a couple years ago, actually had one of his best showings ever, uh, I want to say. Was it, was it the Darren Clark Open? I'll have to check my stats real quick. But anyway, he maybe he's still got one in him as he matures a little bit. Um, as far as the PGA Championship go, yeah, when you start thinking about now, outside of Augusta, you start getting back to that reputation he had before he won his first major in 2004, when he was 34 years old. And was still consider- was considered the best player in the world without a major. Yes, remember when he had zero? Uh, you know, he was he was this guy who'd been pro for a decade and not won a major with that kind of talent. So for him to win three Masters in a PGA, you know, puts him now in pretty pretty decent territory of an all-time great with four majors, six runners-up though at a U.S. Open does, you know, it's the it's the double-edged sword, right? You have to be a spectacular player to finish second at U.S. Open six times. But you also have to be a combination of hard luck and a little bit of a choker to not win at least one of those. So, yeah, I would think at this year's British Open, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tap Phil as a, as a favorite at the British Open. But come the PGA, that's another style of golf that might suit him. Yeah, that's the thing. It kind of gets back to what I said at the start is you just never know with Phil. You just never know. He can be so erratic and such and, and a question mark, but he can also be so entertaining, too.
0: Brian, the people on Sky TV who give us most of our golf coverage over here have been pining for an English winner of a major since Nick Faldo won the last one for them back in 1996. They got it through Justin Rose. A lot had been expected of Lee Westwood and Luke Donald and Ian Poulter maybe more recently, but Rose has got it done. I wouldn't imagine he's box office as dynamite in the US, but it sounds like he was a popular winner.
8: He's not box office dynamite. You're right, and I don't know if he's box office dynamite among those other names you mentioned too. Lee Westwood has had sort of more of a of a foothold. Uh, Ian Poulter, you know, just from the pants alone and the and the and the occasional flares of temper and personality. Luke Donald's been number one in the world. Justin Rose has none of those things. But you're right. If he, if, if if an American golf fan takes time to appreciate the game played beautifully, then he is viewed as a very popular winner. Plus guys he has a sterling reputation as a person over here you know nick faldo and colin montgomery would be two examples of guys that don't have that sterling reputation Two guys who are very difficult to warm up to. Justin Rose is one of those guys who golf fans have a very easy time warming up to. He's always handled himself with class and grace. And he's made his name in America by winning some big tournaments over here. Jack Nicholas's memorial tournament, for example, in 2010. Uh, the World Golf Championship event at Doral last year was a big marquee win. Uh, what he did—a Tiger's tournament. Um, uh, Tiger Woods has that AT&T National. He won that event. He won a FedEx Cup playoff event at Cog Hill, Chicago's famous golf course. So he's planted his flag in the States. We definitely have known about him a lot. It's just that he's one of those guys. You know, will he ever win a major? But like you mentioned, that crew, that English class—were they ever going to win one? And I think it was fair to say that you know guys like Lee Westwood and Luke Donald and, and Ian Poulter—you you sort of have to question their. Their bottle, as you guys would call it over there, you know, can't, why can't they win a major? Because I mean, as much as we knock Phil, he's won four majors at least, right? So here, here comes the guy who has the bottle, who has the moxie, who has the the steel to do what Lee Westwood and Luke Donald and and Ian Poulter have never had the the steel or the moxie to do. I tell you what, guys, the way he played that 18th hole just seals him, vaults him into really, you know, kind of the pantheon of great finishers. That 520-yard par four, when he had basically everything to think about right there, and then of course you throw in the sentimental story about his father and Father's Day—he's been gone ten years now—and he was very close to his father, his coach, his caddy, his mentor—that had to be rattling around in his brain, you know, coming to that moment, and for him to, to get to channel his body and his golf swing right that exact time for that drive and that four iron was—I mean—it gave you goosebumps just to watch it. So. Yes, very uh, a rich appreciation for him. Again, he's not doesn't have the storyline, doesn't have one half of the storyline of a Phil Mickelson, but if you're a golf fan who appreciates a gentleman, a classy guy, and, and a guy who played and finished that strongly, you feel very good for Justin Rose. Very similar guys to how you felt about Adam Scott winning the Masters. I sort of feel like the first two major winners of the year sort of are similar guys. They're both 32 years old, they both have beautiful golf swings, you got to search long and hard to find anybody to say a bad word about either guy. Everybody feels good for them getting their first major. I feel like uh, maybe this is the year of the good guy major winners.
0: Yeah, no, I think I want Tiger to win the next one, but uh, certainly (laughs) up to now. (laughs) Brian, listen, I know the big story over there is the NBA Finals. Game six is tonight, Tuesday night, the early hours of Wednesday morning. So if anybody's listening to this show at the moment from Wednesday on, they're going to have the benefit of hindsight, which is where a broadcaster can sound a little bit silly throwing out predictions. But as I talk to you, Miami Heat with LeBron James and the other great players they have are on their knees, they're on the brink of defeat in this series.
8: It's incredible. It's been, you know, this San Antonio Spurs performance is just so San Antonio Spurs-ish, isn't it? I mean, it's like, how do you define the Spurs? Well, this is how you define the Spurs. Team, team, team. From Greg Popovich on down, they, they, they've, they've done what the Spurs do, and that is to not rely on one guy, you know, whereas the, the Heat pretty much are going to go as LeBron goes, right? I mean, you had Dwayne Wade's spectacular performance in Game 4. You had Mario Chalmers in Game 2. But you really are relying on LeBron, who's been, you know, the guy and is the best player in the world. The Spurs are so magnificent about their balance. you got a guy named Danny Green potentially bidding to become the MVP of the NBA Finals. I mean, you go find basketball fans who knew Danny Green. I mean, you knew him if you were hardcore, but the average fan didn't know Danny Green. They knew Tim Duncan. They knew Manu Ginobili. They knew Tony Parker. And those guys have been brilliant in their own ways, too, although Ginobili, in his own way, was his own story that was very Spurs-ish because he was vacant for the first four games. And then in Game 5, look at Popovich with the master stroke. Greg Popovich... Who, by the way, uh, I'm sure you guys have enjoyed his mid-quarter interviews in which he just gives the tersest and most uh, truculent answers possible. Yeah, he makes very entertaining uh, TV. I don't know if you guys get that over there. Yeah, he He doesn't want uh, to play that. Do you guys get that?
5: Yeah, yeah, he makes uh, Jim Harbaugh look like, um, (laughs) I don't don't quite know who, Red Auerbach or one of these Uh, guys. He makes
8: Harbaugh look like Phil Mickelson on a good day or something, you know, with all the grins and the thumbs up and the goofy smiles, right? Uh, so anyway, but Popovich is just a master. He's going for his fifth NBA title, guys. You know that would tie him with with uh, uh, Pat Riley on the all time list with five titles, trailing only Red Auerbach and Phil Jackson. So you don't want to talk about Tall Cotton. You were know, talking Greg Popovich, a guy that you're like, oh yeah, what about Greg Popovich? Well, here's here about Greg Popovich. He's one win away from becoming the third, tying with Pat Riley for the third most titles in NBA history, okay? That's what's at stake here. So, you know, I've just admired the Spurs so much, and to be quite honest, I'm rooting for the Spurs. I still, I can't, three years later, I'm still having trouble, you know, just accepting the whole, the the heat feels so artificial to me, and yet, of course, I know they didn't take more money to come together, and they all want to win. I understand that. There's just still something that leaves me cold I also think Miami is a bad sports town. I don't really love Miami as a sports town. I don't think I, I don't want to see them win it. But there's something I admire about the Spurs' system, and their discipline, and their and their teamwork, and their veteran pride. Now that said, can they lose the last two in Miami? Absolutely. In fact, uh, it's been done. We were just talking about this uh, this week on our show. Uh, you're looking at the 1988 L.A. Lakers the 1994 Houston Rockets, the O.J. Simpson Broncos series, and the 2010 Lakers against the Celtics as teams who were down 3-2 and then came home to win games 6 and 7 at home. So that's what the Heat have to do. So it's been done, and we've seen it in our uh, you know, in our lifetime, and we've seen great teams do it. They could easily do it, but at the same time, you're looking at a Spurs team. There's another great stat for you. They're 14-2. and Since this whole kind of run has begun in potential series-clinching games on the road, that is really impressive in the Popovich era. 14-2, and that means that they come equipped to handle their business. That means they they ratchet up their focus and their coaching and their game plans and their discipline and their lack of turnovers when it's most important. So I've just really enjoyed them watching, watching them play the game of basketball. The Heat play sort of the... LeBron's sensational brilliant basketball athleticism the Spurs play with such great mind and discipline and uh, it's been to me a very entertaining series and of course if you're listening to the podcast on Wednesday and the Spurs have won I look great if the Heat have won well then heck I've talked to me about uh, you know the fact that this is this has been done before and LeBron is such an all-time great that he has the capability to lead two championship or two wins on their home floor the only thing I'll say is if they don't do it, you're looking at one ring now for this big three. One ring, that's the same amount that Dirk Nowitzki and Chauncey Billups have. I mean, they were looking to have three by this time, not one. So there's a lot at stake. Brian, you've covered your bases nicely there. Great to talk to you. Enjoy game six. Great talking to you boys. I look forward to doing it again.
0: Great stuff from Brian as ever. Phil Mickelson was the biggest story, probably even bigger than Justin Rosemurf. But I do want to ask you about Rory McElroy, who's committed mm. a fairly heinous crime of a lot of times Can't believe it.
5: I just I just can't well, believe What did putter. It putter Well it was, it was a wedge But nevertheless It was a wedge Unless uh, he was putting From quite a distance <laughs> Yeah he, he hit a bad shot He decided to take it out In his club And uh, a lot of people Kind of thought That this was disrespecting The great game of golf <laughs> uh, Which you know maybe, Maybe it is But maybe it's just a guy Who knows he's 100% Out of a tournament Deciding what the hell Who cares I'm angry And I'm going to take it out It's basically the golfing Equivalent of you know Going home and kicking the cat and, I mean, it's, it's not like he's the only guy who uh, did. Jason Duffner, the world, the most emotionless man in golf, threw a wedge in into a, uh, uh, a greenside river. He got so annoyed at a wedge, it just happens. I mean, it's no I'm not going to
4: pry into your private life, mm-hmm. but would you kick a cat on live television in front of a global audience of, of tens of millions?
5: Uh, it, it's it's a turn of phrase, Ken. I mean, I'm not going to kick any living thing. You know, I'm I'm, I'm not. Well, that I'm glad gonna to go hear
4: it. I'm glad to hear it. But you know, I think Rory mcroy has got to remember that he's. A role model. He's a very important role model.
5: Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, on, I want to talk about an email that came into us uh, referring to this brilliant slot that we all remember all so well. <laughs> Exhalation laughs with Owen <laughs> Uh Yes, <laughs> Gary in uh, Cloughhead spotted one during uh, hashtag P-Bezo last week and immediately emailed, so let's have a listen. Brian Lockheed is listening in Sweden to remind myself what laughter sounds like. <laughs> Oh, there it is. Yeah, uh, in fairness, that was pretty obvious. I think I actually remember thinking of it at the time, but, you know, when I'm in my hashtag p when I've got that hat on, i got to just retain my focus. So I can confirm that that is a perfect example of the exhalation laugh. Uh, Ken, obviously, yes, you would agree. Yes. Uh, if uh, if any of you have spotted an exhalation laugh... What was, it? What was that <laughs> I, I just did one there, oh, okay. yeah, sorry. If any of you have spotted an exhalation laugh on today's show, email us immediately to editor at secondcaptains.com and hopefully this slot can run and run and run. <laughs> Exhalation laughs with Owen McDowell. Alternatively,
0: if Murphy <laughs> finally says something funny enough to make me full, actually full-on full on. laugh, then do alert us to that as well. I, I think it's fair to say may this may well not happen. This,
5: slot could run
0: and run alright great stuff thanks very much for listening to us second captains at the Irish Times we will be back next week you can email editor at second if you want to get any of those in as Murph has been talking about facebook.com forward slash second captains and our twitter handle is at second captains so those are the ways to get in touch with us
4: thanks very much Murph
5: thank you one. thanks Ken thanks
0: Ken thank
4: you Karen thank you Owen thanks guys <laughs> is that,
2: that's the second time it's gone off they never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those 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 boys.